The charity and not-for-profit sector is rarely seen as a leader in innovation, but my guest today is working hard to change that. Mark Reading is head of the Atlassian Foundation. He's the bridge between the Aussie technology success story that is Atlassian and the charities they choose to support through their Pledge 1% model. The foundation is pushing back against the most restrictive norms of the not-for-profit sector to drive pioneering new projects and funding models in their key field of work, which is educating disadvantaged youth around the world. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions can have a big impact. I was introduced to Mark by a previous guest, Adam McCurdy, who's the founder of Humanitix. You see, Mark and the Atlassian Foundation are supporting Humanitix through an innovative model of charitable impact investing. I'll leave that to Mark to explain. And before he took on the role of running the foundation, Mark had worked as a consultant at PwC for an epic 33 years. It gave him plenty of time to see the way a plethora of different businesses are run and he's putting that experience to good use in leveraging the resources that flow from Atlassian to support the work of the foundation. So let's get into it. You can find all the show notes on the website at johntreadgold.com. You can get us on social media or leave us a review on iTunes. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Mark Reading. Here we go. have you on the show Mark Reading. We've had a lot of different groups of people on the podcast talking about social impact and how people can make a difference from all different angles and it's great to bring someone like yourself on. You're head of the Atlassian Foundation and while foundations tend to be sort of the traditional method that corporates and big organizations engage with charities but with Atlassian we've got the meeting of two worlds. We've got a technology giant that's slowly taking over the world from Martin Place in Sydney, but then they've got a foundation. So I'd really love to dig into how you guys balance that and what your role is at the foundation. Maybe we can start by a bit of an introduction to yourself, the mission behind the foundation, and then how the values of Atlassian, the company, are integrated with those of the foundation. I moved across from PwC to Atlassian about two and a half years ago now. I was at PwC for 33 years prior to leaving PwC and uh, and joining the Atlassian Foundation. I spent my last six years at PwC as the Australian firm's corporate responsibility partner, and that was an important part of my personal journey to where I am today. As the head of the Atlassian Foundation, my role, I guess, is primarily to lead a great team of people, not just the core foundation team, but but all Atlassians, to help to deliver upon the ambition that we have, which is to use the skills and the resources made available through Atlassian to improve the world, and in particular, by focusing on two areas, educating disadvantaged youth around the world and growing a a movement that we co-founded called the Pledge 1% movement, which is encouraging business founders who aren't social enterprises, who are sort of more traditional businesses, to try and bake into the the DNA of their organisation as early as possible the concept of of using 1% of their resources for good in whatever area makes the most sense for them. That's at a high level what I do. In terms of the values of Atlassian, 
one of the things that struck me when I actually joined Atlassian was how different Atlassian is from any other company that I encountered during my 33 years at PwC, and that was thousands of companies, in that the values truly do drive decision-making on a day-to-day basis at Atlassian. In most organizations, pretty much all organizations that I'd encountered prior to Atlassian, they were much more words on a poster on a wall that didn't really have anywhere near the impact on behavior that the people who created them would have hoped they'd had. A couple of the the Atlassian values are be the change you seek. And um, I think the history of the foundation, the fact that it was created so early in the, the life cycle of Atlassian, when frankly Atlassian was still a question mark as to whether or not it would be financially successful, is a testament to the fact that um, that particular value was brought to life in the very early days through the foundation. And, and now the foundation is, is one of the ways in which every single Atlassian, and there's you know, almost 4,000 of us these days, can live that value. There are other ways as well, but, but certainly the foundation provides a, an avenue for, for 4,000 people to live that particular value. And that's right. You know, Atlassian is, is an Australian startup success story. And, and we always hear about, you know, the two guys toiling away, building this small company. And, and of course, at that stage, they would have had hopes, but no, no certainty that it would grow to the big company that it is. And so they made that 1% commitment at that time. What have been some of the challenges in maintaining that as it turned into a big, now publicly listed company? Surprisingly few, actually. Um, Certainly, when I was at PwC, I used to occasionally say that I felt like I was swimming against the tide. Now, that's not in any way belittling PwC because there was a really strong commitment to social impact, but there were definitely times when I felt like I was swimming against the tide. At Atlassian, I've never, ever felt like I was swimming against the tide. I've been really fortunate that the two co-founders, Scott and Mike, are genuinely and personally 100% passionate about trying to make a difference in the world. I mean, Atlassian's core business itself, for those who don't really know much about it, is all about um, creating team-based software that helps to, to bring out the best in teams. So, you know, that's actually a, a really worthy goal or purpose for a, for a corporate in the first place. But when you sort of add to that the fact that Scott and Mike so early in their business careers had the, the wisdom, the perspective, um, I guess, to be able to think about more than just the business that they were trying to build, but their place in the world is evidence of a level of authenticity that frankly is is just phenomenal. And so as Atlassian has grown, well, certainly in the two and a half years that I've been there, I've not really found that there are any major obstacles. I guess from a practical perspective, as we scale, sometimes things just become more challenging. Being able to put in place a volunteering program for 500 people is very different to a volunteering program for you know, three and a half thousand. And you know, we'll be 10,000 in a few years' time. We'll have challenges making sure that we can provide opportunities for our people at that scale. So there are logistical, practical challenges, but in terms of bigger picture strategic type challenges or obstacles, I have to say, touch wood, that I'm in an incredibly fortunate position that there aren't any. Yeah, and, and it makes me think that perhaps that is evidence that of the importance of companies really working and, and, and celebrating and communicating their purpose. You know, it's a very tangible way for Atlassian to do that, to put their money where their mouth is and really contribute. Do you think that has something to do with this zeitgeist of, of purpose? I mean, it's hard to, hard to say exactly what it is. It, it, for me, it all comes down to Scott and Mike as, as individuals and as, as leaders. I personally am inspired and stunned by the fact that two young guys who 
started a business uh, with basically very little, if any, business experience. I think Scott had worked for about 18 months as part of the co-op scholarship program he was part of, and, and Mike had had um, a bit less experience. But with so limited experience uh, from a business perspective, they weren't just focused upon the business. They were thinking about you know, much bigger and broader issues. And so for me, it's actually the call that leadership or call it authenticity or, or call it whatever you want. That to me is the absolute bedrock upon which everything that we're able to do through the Atlassian Foundation and through you know, the growing team that our Atlassian employees is built upon. If there wasn't that authentic leadership, then I think we would be a very different foundation facing a very different reality. Right, and I'd love to dig into the structure of the foundation itself. You know, while we do have some people that are socially minded, um, we probably also have an audience that aren't, you know, as clear on sort of the business model of a foundation. I believe you guys run a private ancillary fund, a PATH. Can you give us a bit of a description of, yeah, how you manage that and, and the systems and I guess also the, uh, the model of the charity you choose? Yeah, sure. We run both a PATH, a private ancillary fund called the Atlassian Foundation, and more recently, a second entity that is a public benevolent institution, a PBI, Atlassian Foundation International Limited. Historically, the PATH has existed much longer. I think it was created in about 2008, if, I, if my facts are correct. And I guess at that stage in, in Atlassian's history, it was much more a, an Australian-based company rather than the global company that it is today. And, you know, a PAF is a fairly traditional structure in Australia. One of the limitations of a PAF is that um, you can only make donations to Australian DGR registered entities, so deductible gift recipients. And as Atlassians grew and became more global and, and as the ambitions of the foundation increased, particularly following the, the IPO of Atlassian in, in 2015, when, when the 1% of the equity in the company that was owned by the Atlassian Foundation suddenly became a, a very substantial and liquid asset, the ambitions of the foundation became much greater and much more global. And so rather than just focusing on things that might be here in Australia or funding entities that existed in Australia, then it was appropriate to try and put in place a structure that enabled us to work on a global basis. And so Atlassian Foundation International, or AFL as we refer to it, was created, and it's the vehicle that uh, we now use to sort of channel the funding for all the international activity that we do. So we have the goal of helping to educate 10 million disadvantaged youth around the world within the next 10 years, focusing specifically on trying to equip them with the skills they'll need for the workforce of the future. Clearly, with that global goal, we needed to have a, a structure that enabled us to, to work with partners globally. Okay, and this focus on education, where did that come from? Well before my time, um, the foundation has, has always focused on education. So the decision was taken within a year or two, I think, of, of the, the commitment by Scott and Mike to use 1% of their resources for good. Uh, when I've heard Scott talk about it, he's basically said, look, the thinking was once you've sorted out basic things like food, safety, shelter, then education is the game changer that can fundamentally change lives, particularly if you focus upon education for girls. If you do that, then you have intergenerational 
benefits that are quite substantial. You know, an, an educated mum will generally place a great deal of importance on the education of, of the kids, uh, particularly in a low-income country, more importance than perhaps an educated male might. So there are real intergenerational benefits, but also their thinking-wise, look, we're, we're young and we're in our early to mid-20s. We've got 30 years, at least 30 years of, of business career in front of us. We can focus on tackling something that's a you know, big challenging issue. It's going to take many, many years to, to drive meaningful change. We don't have to focus on things that are sort of more short term in nature or, or more tackling the symptoms rather than the underlying cause. So it was that sort of thinking that resulted in the foundation focusing upon education for probably a decade. Most of the focus was upon supporting a single organization, room to read in a, in a single location, Cambodia. Then, as I said earlier, once Atlassian IPO'd and, and once I came on board, the ambition was increased to our 10 million in 10 years goal. Yeah, I spoke to Adam McCurdy from Humanitics, and I believe you know there's a link between the Atlassian Foundation and those guys. But he mentioned Room to Read and, and sort of went into to some detail about how they operate. And the thing that really struck me was the, the rigour with which they measure their impact and how focused they are on data. And I think that's something lacking in the charity sector more and more as you know, these opportunities develop. So did that data focused approach sort of sway your interest or, um, or maybe you guys with your sort of skills there, maybe you influence them there? I don't think we've had a lot of influence. Certainly we are, we are strongly of the view that any organization that's focused upon social impact should be doing everything it can to identify um, how you, you track and measure the impact that you're having or the progress that you're making towards having impact. And, and you use that information to sort of question and challenge whether or not what you're doing is working and, and what can be done to improve it. But I think part of the DNA of, of Room to Read, I guess the values and the background of Room to Read's founder, you, your listeners may not be aware that Room to Read was founded by a former Microsoft executive by the name of John Wood. And he left Microsoft to, to set up Room to Read. Not surprising for a senior executive coming from an organization like Microsoft, there's a, a pretty strong focus upon you know, measuring what matters. And so that was very much built into the, the philosophy of, of Room to Read from an early stage. We're 100% aligned behind that sort of thinking. And certainly that's a factor that we take into account when we're thinking about which organizations we choose to partner with as part of our own goal of, of helping to educate 10 million disadvantaged youth. You know, if an organization clearly understands its theory of change, if an organization is doing its very best to you know, measure and track the impact that it's having or the, or the progress towards the impact that it would like to have, then that's an organization that's you know, very much aligned to, to our way of thinking and is much more likely to be an organization we'd be interested in supporting than one that um, didn't demonstrate those characteristics. Okay. And what do you think then are some of the main opportunities going forward in terms of impact measurement? You know, I'm sure technology can play a big role there. What's your thinking there? Well, I guess first thought is impact measurement is hard. One of the things that I think plenty of people in business don't appreciate is just how hard it is to measure social impact. I was actually at a, an event in New York as part of a cohort that we're part of called Co-Impact. Co-Impact was an initiative of the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And, and Bill Gates was actually speaking to a small group of us at 
the Rockefeller Foundation in New York. And he sort of was sharing his observations that identifying the right measures, right metrics to track from a business perspective are so much easier than identifying the right measures to track from a social impact perspective. One of his learnings as a result of him focusing so much these days on the social impact that he and his wife Melinda want to have is that he completely underestimated the complexity of social systems and the, and the challenges that come with tracking uh, impact. I mean, frankly, I think they do it better than anybody else on the planet, probably, given their resources as well. But it's interesting to hear a leader such as Bill Gates saying that social impact is so much more difficult to achieve than, than business outcomes. Tracking the right measures is so much more difficult in a social impact context than it is in a, a business context. Um, we actually are learning as we go. We certainly don't have any um, magic bullet or, or solution that, that clearly works. We have chosen to use a software platform that's provided by a, a New York-based organization called True Impact. True Impact started out as a consulting organization, uh, consulting around social impact, and they built a, a tool for tracking impact. And then over time, they've sort of evolved more into a, a software as a service provider, providing this software platform called True Impact and using their, their historical social impact consulting skills and experience to help people actually you know, implement and use True Impact as a software platform to its, its full extent. We encourage all of the partners that we work with to use True Impact and to use that as the platform that enables them to effectively track and utilize insights around the impact they're having. If an organization's already doing something else, then obviously we don't force true impact upon them. But if they're an earlier stage initiative that hasn't yet embraced impact measurement, you know, the way that they might, then we certainly fund and work with them to use true impact as, a, as an underlying platform. Technology is not the solution, but it's definitely an enabler in helping to, to assess impact effectively. Yeah, I'd love to dig into True Impact a little bit more. I mean, it's a platform, I guess, and, and so a system like that's only as good as the inputs. How does a, a platform like that manage, you know, having so many different potential metrics, lots of different outputs and outcomes coming into it? You know, how does it manage that that's top of your list? Absolutely. Um, I mean, for us, the reason we chose True Impact was because it basically provides as you say, an enabling platform with almost like a, a smorgasbord of recommended metrics for different thematic areas. So, you know, in the area of education, they'll have a suite of different recommended metrics for tracking impact. And those metrics will vary depending upon whether or not the focus is upon early childhood education or, or um, other elements of, of education, you know, skills for the future, those sorts of things. Those metrics that are sort of embedded as, as options for, for automatic use and selection within the platform are based upon a lot of research that's been done over the years around social impact and evidence that indicates that certain measures are better than others for, for tracking impact. So I guess part of the appeal for us was the fact that there was so much expertise um, within True Impact uh, as an organization around which measures are the best ones for tracking change and, and which measures align best with different theories of change and what the evidence is that uh, that something is a true driver of change and, and what's not and all of that expertise is sort of brought to bear in both the options that are available to you to select from 
and the links that underpin them that sort of give you insight into you know what's the academic rigor what's the scientific rigor behind that as a metric being appropriate or not it also provides the flexibility to, to create your own measures but because it is flexible and uh, you're totally right i agree with you john that a piece of technology itself is is only as good as the as the content that's in it you know the the underlying structure of the platform and the and the smorgasbord of options that exist as as sort of template structures is based upon a hell of a lot of experience in this field yeah great to hear about sort of innovative new options and it makes me think about the limitations you you discussed earlier about a path how you can only invest in Australian-based charities, you know, in the way that you guys have sort of analysed charitable giving in Australia, would there be some other models that you think, yeah, I guess new charitable business models that you guys have sort of started to think about that might operate more efficiently? One of the things uh, about uh, Atlassian, and it sort of filters through to the Atlassian Foundation, is everything is always up for, for revisiting and improving you know, innovation. So yes, we are always very, very open to, to new and better ways of, of doing things. I mean, part of the reason that we're supporting Humanitics, for example, as one of our impact investments is because we absolutely love you know, their model to effectively have a business that is 100% social impact focused, that has the potential to be massively scalable and completely sustainable for me personally is is incredibly exciting you know when i first met um, josh and adam the two co-founders of humanities and i heard what they were doing we were totally inspired by what they were doing and um you know worked hard with them to find ways to support them but even even within atlassian you know we we have given thought to whether or not um other models might be more appropriate so um, at present, the Atlassian Foundation's resource base comes from, I guess, uh, four areas. I guess, a bit of context. Uh, we refer to sort of the Pledge 1% movement and, and, and Pledge 1%. In our case, what happened there was Scott and Mike pledged to use 1% of the equity in Atlassian, 1% of the profits of Atlassian, 1% of the time of all Atlassians, and 1% of Atlassian's product for good. So the, the foundation itself is, is resourced with 1% of the shares in Atlassian. We've since sold down some of those shares and, and created a bit of a diversified portfolio, which is sort of good practice from a governance and risk management perspective. But that you know, created a pretty substantial asset base given how successful Atlassian has been and, and what the market cap of Atlassian is worth. Um, you know, we receive income each year in the form of the, the 1% of profit. Actually, we're fortunate that in addition to the 1% of profit, Whenever you take out a starter license for Atlassian software, which is a license for up to 10 users, the revenue doesn't go to the company. Um, it actually comes to the foundation. So we get two sources of income each year from, from Atlassian, the 1% of profit plus all starter license revenue. They're the two sources of, of, sort of revenue from a financial perspective or sources of assets and resources from a financial perspective. Um, we've thought about whether or not we should do something like you know, what Salesforce have done. Well, they had until recently a, an organization called salesforce.org. And to cut a long story short, that was a, a, a little akin to a, a division of Salesforce that operated as a, as a standalone business unit, if you like, marketing Salesforce software to the, the nonprofit community and um, using the the profits that, that were generated from that community to reinvest in social impact through salesforce.org. So we've asked ourselves, you know, should we potentially create a, 
a separate little business unit of Atlassian that is focused upon serving the nonprofit community or the nonprofit and academic communities and, and using the, the profits that might stem from, from that segment of the marketplace uh, to fund the Atlassian Foundation. Even though we've looked at that, we've concluded that that's not the right way to go because for a whole host of reasons, it sort of introduces duplication and inefficiency. And, and to be honest, the, you know, the core competencies of the foundation and the foundation team uh, are not building a, a sales and marketing business. So, you know, for a whole host of reasons, we've decided that's not the right way to go. And, and it's interesting that Salesforce themselves have recently collapsed salesforce.org back into the company. But we're always looking at, at, at new ways of doing things. You know, one of the things that I'm working on at present is thinking about ways of generating new income streams for the foundation. So, yeah, both externally and internally, um, always up for new ways of doing things. And if they make sense and are impactful and, and sustainable, then more often than not, we'll throw our weight behind them. That's it. The, the humanitic story is a really interesting one. And in the way that they're disrupting the ticketing industry, it sounds like you guys are, are doing your, your bit to chip away and, and disrupt the charity sector. But I'd love to dig in. I remember when Adam told us about the relationship that they have with you guys and that impact investing is something we talk about a lot here and that in the typical model, an investor who wants to get a return but also have a social impact return might take equity from a company, invest, help it grow. They then earn a, earn a return and they also can promote the, the social impact of that investment. But if you're a social enterprise, if you're a not-for-profit entity, then that's a problem because you've got no equity give, give away. You've got no profit. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, look, I'd love to, uh, I'll let you explain the, the sort of model of, I guess, charitable equity that you um, established with Humanitics. Indeed. Um, well, certainly when, when we first started to have some conversations with, with Josh and Adam from Humanitics, and you know, we indicated that we'd be very keen to, to explore with them providing some form of impact investing support, it became clear very quickly that, that they were a, a non-profit organization with you know, no shares um, and hence no ability to offer equity to an investor. And so my first reaction was, oh, well, that closes down any avenue there. The only real option that we've got available to us would potentially be providing to them some debt funding, at an appropriate, hopefully subsidized interest rate that um, would enable them to grow and also give us a, you know, a reasonable return on the, the loans that we would be providing to Humanitics. That was the only option that, that sort of I could think of at the time. Josh, on the other hand, given his finance background, I mean, I've got a finance background as well, but he's definitely more creative than I was. He came back and said, look, no, Mark, we're definitely not interested in debt. That just creates too much risk for us. And so he sort of came up with a few ideas, one of which was led to what we ultimately put in place. And, and essentially that is that we have made grants to Humanitics and Humanitics um, have always wanted to focus on education. Initially, education was one of a, a number of areas that they were focused upon, whereas now Humanitics is wholly focused upon education. Clearly, there's 100% alignment with, with what we're doing there. And you know, Humanitics is, will, will in time be generating profits that are paid to um, education-focused non-profits. Right now, those profits are, are not that great. I think they've generated a total of $250,000 in donations up until now. In, in the years to come, I can see that being coming you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. But we basically have given them grant funding uh, on the basis that they will channel some of their profits to Room to Read, which obviously is one of the, the non-profits that, that we support. So rather than us making an investment, getting a return ourselves, and then making donations to Room to Read, 
we've basically put in place a mechanism whereby the funds flow directly from Humanitics to the end beneficiary, Room to Read. And so long as you know, those donations from Humanitics to Room to Read are of a sufficient size to sort of justify the funding that we've provided to them, uh, everybody's happy. It's, it's a really interesting and novel way of providing financial support to a non-profit that works for everybody. You know, ultimately, we're all about trying to change lives through education, through partner organisations like Room to Read. They're all about changing lives through a, a really innovative and disruptive approach to business um, with a, a focus on education. You know, Josh's creativity uh, enabled us to, to come up with a, a mechanism that um, meant that all of our goals were able to be achieved, notwithstanding the fact they had no equity to offer and, and hence from a, a traditional impact investing perspective, you know, didn't appear to really provide much of an opportunity for an impact-focused organisation like our foundation. Look, a lot, of, a lot of layers of impact there and you did talk about the challenges of impact measurement and I think with, with those uh, sort of partnerships and leverage and things going on there, you've made it even more difficult for yourself to try and sort through, you know, who sort of, I guess, takes, takes the, the blame for the impact there. But no, that sounds like a great model and, and love to see that innovation. I think that that business model innovation is as important and as impactful as sort of the technological innovation that we hear spoken of so much and certainly in the in the social sector that business model innovation is is really valuable and vital to sort of get away from the status quo but you know it sounds like you know you've thought deeply about these things and and at the beginning you told us about your your career at, at pwc i think you said did you say 33 years 35 years 33 years yeah yeah that's quite a, <laughs> a long period of time <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you'd obviously would have come across so many different case studies and, and lots of different clients and lots of different business challenges. So I'd, I'd love to hear for starters, what sort of industry focus you had there, but also why then you made the switch from, uh, from the commercial side to uh, working for a foundation. Sure. Yeah. So I sort of started straight out of school doing a, a sort of a sandwich course degree, which is a mixture of part-time and full-time, and moved across from a, a small accounting firm to, to PwC when I was sort of three or four years in towards completing that degree. My client-facing activity was very much valuation and strategy work. I was lucky I had a, a very successful career within PwC and, um, and loved the, the nature of that work. There was um, working with different clients, never doing the same thing twice for, for many, many years. And, and I was really lucky to have had, be able to have many careers within a career at PwC. In about 2010, I think it was, the existing corporate responsibility partner at PwC, a guy by the name of Rick Millen, tapped a few of us on the shoulder, letting us know that he was planning to, to retire in about six to 12 months' time, I think it was, and asked us whether or not um, we would be interested in sort of taking on the role. I'd always been one of the partners at PwC who'd been probably most supportive and most engaged in, in trying to support the PwC Foundation. And so that was the reason he sort of tapped me on the shoulder. Personally, I went through a, a really interesting journey. Um, what I found was I suddenly had to deal with my own ego. I had no idea that I would find it so difficult to actually move from a, a role where I was a successful revenue generating PwC partner uh, who'd been a business leader and things like that to a, to a role leading the corporate responsibility side of, of PwC. And so it took me three or four months of serious introspection about what was important to me to sort of make that change. With hindsight, I'm so glad that I 
ultimately had the courage to to sort of tackle the fears that arose as a result of my ego. Um, but I then spent about six years as the corporate responsibility partner at PwC Australia and, and on the PwC Global Corporate Responsibility Board. And I very quickly found that I was getting an enormous you know, meaning and purpose and satisfaction out of my corporate responsibility partner role and much less meaning and purpose and motivation out of my traditional client work, which up until then had, had always given me a, a lot of satisfaction. And so I actually found myself sort of no longer wearing out the shoe leather chasing down business in my client facing role um, in the same way that I had in the past. And, and it became clear that my position at PwC as both a client facing partner and a corporate responsibility partner wasn't sustainable. I had an honest heart to heart conversation with the partner that I was responsible to and it became very clear that moving back into a client role wasn't an option and that I would move on from PwC. So I, we sort of agreed an 18 month transition plan where I switched to three days a week just to focus on the CR partner role because officially I'd been spending 60% of my time in that capacity and then I would retire from the, from the partnership. When I was retiring, I was thinking that I would possibly do a little bit of part-time consulting work or something around social impact because I was motivated by making a difference in the world and had no idea that Atlassian was seeking ahead of the foundation. Um, but I sent out the obligatory email, as you do when you're moving on from one role to another, letting people know that I was, um, I was moving on from PwC and, uh, and I was actually approached by Melissa Beaumont Lee, who I'd sort of met previously and been a little bit of an informal mentor to, who drew to my attention the fact that Atlassian were looking for a, a head of the foundation. At first, I didn't think it was the right role for me because it was a full-time role. And as I said earlier, I had no intention to, to be working full-time. But um, it took about 72 hours of reflection. And, and then I decided that, yep, it would definitely be a, a really motivating role. And I would definitely have the energy and the passion for it. So I um, put my hat in the ring, threw my hat in the ring. And um, after six interviews, including two hours with, with Scott Farquhar as the final interview, I was lucky enough to be given the role. And um, I have to say, you know, I've got more energy and more passion and, and, and more motivation um, than I've had, I think, at any point in my career. So I feel incredibly privileged to be entrusted with the responsibility of leading the Atlassian Foundation. And um, I have to say that that decision back in 2010 to deal with my ego and the fears that I faced at the time and to throw my hat in the ring for the corporate responsibility partner role at PwC was one of those life-changing moments that's taken me down a path that today is incredibly you know, satisfying and fulfilling. So it's funny how moments in life can have such a, a big long-term impact. Oh, what a great story. Thank you, Mark. That, that's really interesting to see that development. And, uh, you know, I hadn't realized you had that corporate responsibility element to your career. And, you know, as I have these conversations, we come across a lot this question of, of the future of, you know, corporate social responsibility, CSR as it's often called, and this question of whether social impact, social impact measurement, whether that will take over to a degree, you know, there's this idea that all organizations rather than just charities and social enterprises will have to report their impact, whether, you know, positive and negative, and that there'll be a balance there between their profit and that. How do you see that shift, especially, you know, having, I guess you've probably seen that quite deeply from a, a consulting perspective? Yeah, I didn't consult in that space. I sort of consulted more in sort of traditional finance valuation strategy. But yeah, it's certainly an area that I've played in for a number of years now, a decade or so now. And I've definitely seen a, an evolution in the way in which you know, traditional businesses have, have thought about their role in society and, and their purpose and, and how they may or may not have social impact. 
I'm not sure. In fact, I don't believe that sort of traditional businesses will certainly in the you know, next 10 years and possibly a lot longer bake into their way of doing things, a triple bottom line or, you know, a full ESG type approach to activities. I just think that change is, is slow. Certainly there are you know, some very enlightened leaders, um, you know, people like Paul Polman, I guess, from Unilever is one who stands out as, as, a, as a leader of a global organization that, that really drove change. And there are others who are driving change. But I think it's actually more likely that disruptors, you know, like Humanitics and, and other social entrepreneurs um, who are creating you know, brand new and disruptive approaches to business will actually drive change more rapidly than traditional businesses, particularly very large multinational traditional businesses. I mean, it's great to see that there are more and more impact funds and um, there are more and more uh, investors who are, who are focused upon, upon impact. But even then, I, I haven't seen the, the change in the momentum that would give me confidence that we're going to see, you know, really fundamental change over the next 10 years or so. But, you know, I'm inspired by young social entrepreneurs who are thinking about new ways of, of doing things and um, bringing those to life. You know, I mean, we've got four impact investments through the Atlassian Foundation. One of them's through a, an impact fund, um, the Giant Leap Fund run by uh, Danny Almagor, uh, who you're probably familiar with and most of your listeners are probably familiar with, and three direct investments, um, one in Humanitics, one in a, a UK-based business called Percent, which is trying to, to sort of build impact into every financial transaction. It's still a very small emerging social entrepreneurship type business but has real potential. And then thirdly, a uh, an early childhood focused early stage business in the US that's looking at uh, a new model of, of facilitating early childhood development in the home. We're definitely open to other impact investments provided they sort of align with our strategy being one of two things, either being education focused or being a, a social enterprise that has a huge leverage impact on other businesses and, and enables them to achieve things that they couldn't achieve on their own. So for example, you know, Humanitics is, is fundamentally disrupting the ticketing industry, but much more than that, it is, it's, it's empowering so many other businesses to build social impact into more of their day-to-day decision-making around, you know, which ticketing platforms they use and how they organize their events. Something needs to fall into one of those two categories for us to be looking at it. Otherwise it would be, you know, something that was funded through a fund like the Giant Leap Fund. You know, we're really keen to, to use at present you know, 10% of the resources of Atlassian, uh, excluding the Atlassian shares. So we've got both a shareholding in Atlassian plus a diversified portfolio. 10% of that diversified portfolio is available for use around social impact investments. And we're certainly keen to, to put those resources to their best use. I'd love to see us having a really positive result, both from a, from a social impact and a financial return perspective. Uh, with those impact investment funds that we're putting to use because the more successful we are in delivering both, the more likely it is that over time we'll have more of our resource base directed towards impact investing rather than just traditional funds that are managed by a professional fund manager. Great. Well, that's a really interesting perspective on, on CSR and, and how you know the big incumbent companies are dealing with it. I mean, I was going to jump in there with a question about uh, you know, you were saying that it was quite slow, their, their progress in, in having a triple bottom line analysis. And I was sort of going to say, you know, will it be regulation? Maybe it'll be customers demanding these things. Maybe it'll be investors demanding it. But great to hear that for you, it's the innovative startups. It's the disruptors coming in and pushing the big old uh, companies out with a, with a new model. So 
And maybe that'll be a lot quicker than them doing it themselves because we've seen the rate of change that disruption can have, especially if it's got technology fueling it and accelerating it. I don't think it's only disruption. I do think consumer demand will also play a significant part. And I think the more that there are disruptive models that open people's eyes to, you know, what can be achieved, the more that might in turn drive consumer demand and and consumer demand is is then more likely to drive investor sentiment. So I I think they're all interrelated, but I, you know, I have more confidence in social entrepreneur disruptors being the catalyst uh, than I have in, in any other factor being the, the catalyst that, that sort of kickstarts the flywheel. Well, that's right. And I guess it needs it's that consumer demand that pushed Adam and, and the guys to, uh, you know, decide humanities could be a, a social enterprise and that, that would be the, the purpose and the angle they'd go for. So I think that, yeah, that demand's vital at every angle. Yep. No, I agree with you there. I mean, I, I think they were obviously motivated by a desire to, to have a really positive impact on the world. And they thought about different ways in which they could achieve that. And they ultimately chose to, to do it through humanities. I also know that they believe that there are plenty of other industries that are well and truly ripe for disruption through innovative models that, that embed impact at their very core. I'd love to see some of that brought to life over time as well. Stuff, good stuff. Definitely going to keep an eye on those guys, and and really appreciate uh, you know getting a perspective on the Atlassian Foundation and and its unique offering and unique way that it looks at the world and and how it's doing what it does. But uh, I do need to let you go, which is unfortunate. I could chat about this stuff all day long, but uh, I'd love to get a book review off you. Anything that's on the side table at the moment, fiction, nonfiction, whatever's uh, turning you on. Well, not something that's on the side table at the moment, but certainly there are two books that I've read that I would highly recommend to, to anybody. One is called Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life, um, written by uh, an author by the name of Marshall Rosenberg. Um, and I have to say, for me, that book has had a profound impact upon the way in which I communicate with people and um, build relationships. And then the second one is actually a book that was given to me as a Christmas gift by Scott, Scott Farquhar, one of our Atlassian co-founders last Christmas, together with a note that said there are only three books that he's ever read that have fundamentally changed his behavior. And this was one of them. And it's a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, which is very much a a science-based analysis of sleep and the impact that it has on the body and the brain. And uh, having now read it, it's also changed my behavior. So um, they're the two books that I would strongly encourage your listeners to, to have a look at. Oh, that's great. I haven't heard of either of those. I'll definitely keep an eye out. Yeah, I can imagine a, a, a consultant of 33 years would, um, would, would need a bit of catching up on their sleep. Yeah. Um, to cut a long story short, <laughs> the message of the book is um, when you're awake, your, your body and your brain are basically decaying. And when you're asleep, um, your body and your brain are regenerating. And unless you ensure there is enough sleep and enough quality sleep, then you are doing serious damage to, to both your body and your brain. <laughs> so that's, that's the book in a nutshell, but it obviously has a hell of a lot more to it than that. Yeah, all about balance. Yeah. Good stuff. And I think our listeners are probably intrigued about the other uh, books on Scott Farquhar's list of three, but maybe I can uh, get those off you later and, um, and I can drop them in the show notes and people can have a look if they're interested. I'm not sure of the third book on Scott's list, but certainly one of the other books is a book called How Not to Die. I have bought it, but I haven't started reading it yet. And I know that that these days Scott is a vegetarian. I'm pretty sure that that's a decision that was taken on the back of having read How Not to Die. Good stuff. Lots of good advice there, lots of inspiration and and sounds like those ones have a, a big impact and a big influence. So yeah, keep an eye out for all of that. Thanks so much for all of this. Really great insights and um, yeah, I think everyone should keep an eye on the Atlassian Foundation and, and love to hear about what you get up to going forward. 
Uh, it's been a pleasure and, uh, and keep up your great work. Thanks, Mark. Cheers.